Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to hear from you. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So I hear that you're at the American Academy of Pediatric meeting right now. I am. I'm in beautiful San Diego at the um, National Convention and Exposition of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and it's always fun. I'm looking forward to tomorrow, which is the day where we have the meeting for the section on breastfeeding. Nice. I'm sure, it'll be really interesting and educational. Yeah, maybe um, for our next podcast, we could talk about highlights of the absolutely of the AAP. So you have some information about additives to artificial milk, is that right? It's actually the new formulas that are um, being marketed specifically to be offered as supplements to breastfed babies that are primarily breastfed but need some supplementation um, for some reason. And so there was a commentary that came out in the June 1st issue of the AAP News um, and this was written by Dr. Stephen Adam, um, excuse me, Abrams, who is in the section on nutrition, and Dr. Richard Chandler, who is the head of the executive committee for the section on breastfeeding. And they basically um, were talking about there are several new formulas that have been introduced in the U.S. market that have been designed and marketed um, to be used as supplements for breastfed babies. And essentially, they state that there's no data to support the claims that supplemental formula are better than standard formula for breastfed infants. We all know that human milk is the optimal nutrition, but sometimes babies are supplemented, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Obviously, um, some supplementation is truly unnecessary, but when it is necessary, the choice of what to use should be made on um, nutrition and the health of the infant, and families and clinicians should be informed about their choices. So recently in the U.S., there have been several um, formulas that were designed and marketed to be used as supplements for breastfeeding infants, and the idea behind these is that they have characteristics um, such as increased vitamin D, they've got prebiotics or probiotics or DHA, and there is no evidence that there is a um, nutritional deficit that is specific to primarily breastfed infants um, that would be improved by these particular formulas. And so um, they mentioned that the components that are in these formulas already exist in um, many standard formulas. And there is no evidence that 
their inclusion at the levels found in these supplementary formulas um, is any better for breastfed babies. They also point out that um, they can be more expensive, they may not be available through uh, WIC programs, and that there is the, the general recommendation that they have is that physicians recommend using standard formulas um, in newborns if they do need to be supplemented. I would go further than that and say that depending on the setting, expressed breast milk or donor breast milk would be my first choice for supplementing. And then beyond that, there are various formula options. But I think it's a nice time to mention this. Um, we had talked about the study that came out last year talking about supplementing, early supplementing of babies in the hospital. And the formula companies seem to have sort of jumped on that and been promoting this idea that they've got just the right thing for this. And I don't, I don't agree with that marketing. Of course, I don't agree with aggressive formula marketing at all. So I just wanted to share this article. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I usually recommend if babies need supplementation with formula that they use the generic formulas and um, because I don't think there's any evidence that the generic is like more inferior than brand name formulas. Would you? No, agree? there's actually good studies that show that it is not good. Yeah, and my parents, they have a great concern about the cost of formula. They're, they, um, many, many families really look to make sure the breastfeeding works because of the cost of formula. And so I think it's an important message to get out there that the generics are fine. And maybe that's why these companies feel they need to market um, this, uh, this um, idea that there's this special formula that's just for supplementation early on um, because they feel the pressure, not only because of increased rates of breastfeeding, but also um, because of milk sharing and also because of the use of generic formulas. Yes, and uh, I, I find that, you know, there's a real lack of knowledge of normal infant behavior, and I don't know if you experience, experience this, I suspect you do, but families come in frequently and they say, my baby's spitting up, I um, want to change the formula, and they'll change the formula three times, or even I've had moms who are breastfeeding, who the baby will start spitting up more, and they'll stop breastfeeding and get formula because they don't understand um, that spitting up can be normal for a baby. People get very distraught when it looks like it's a lot. They have a hard time knowing what to do. And I've had people who swear that the pre-mixed formula, the baby tolerates it, but the powder, they don't when it's the exact, you know, it's the exact same stuff, essentially, that they're feeding the baby. And so people will often change and change and change until baby grows out of spitting up sometime around, you know, six months or whenever that is. And then they're like, we found the one that works. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I like to, I like to tell families about the natural function of spitting up, which is just the nose washing and throat washing system to (laughs) cut the antibodies in the nose and throat. And I tell them that too. Yeah. And it seems like parents, families really like that. They're like, Oh, that makes sense. I get it. Wow. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I do have a lot of success with that, but certainly I've also had the experience of people who are just, they're on a mission to find 
Yeah. I the right one. I think the other concern is that um, some people believe that breast milk may be inferior. They really believe that their milk may not have enough calories. And so they get pressure from other people to give formula because they think that formula has more calories per ounce. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I've lost Karen due to some sort of digital satellite mishap. So I'm going to continue and talk by myself without Karen for the rest of the podcast. First, I want to talk about kombucha tea because there was a post circulating on Facebook a couple weeks ago about kombucha tea not being safe for babies when moms are drinking it and breastfeeding. People sort of freaked out because so many young, healthy women drink kombucha. So first of all, let's talk about what kombucha tea is for those of you who haven't tried it, um, but have seen it perhaps on refrigerator shelves in grocery stores. Kombucha is a tea that's fermented with a starter called a kombucha, a kombucha mushroom. This is like a sourdough starter, and it's often shared from one person to another for those who make it at home. Sugar is also added to the tea to fuel the fermentation process. So the story behind this fermented beverage being unsafe comes from a few cases of severe illness that were reported to the Iowa Department of Public Health back in 1995. These were two women who became unconscious and were in respiratory distress. They were found to have altered acidity in their blood and one woman ended up dying and the other woman underwent cardiac arrest, but she survived. They were both from the same geographic region, and they both had been drinking what sounds like a reasonable amount of kombucha tea. They both were brewing it themselves, and they both used the same mushroom, so they had shared the same um, starter. At the time, the FDA investigated, and they couldn't find any specific pathogens in the tea that might have caused their illness. So it, so people didn't really understand what had happened, and um, for that reason, kombucha tea has the stigma of perhaps not being safe um, for certain populations. So fast forward to 2013, which is now almost 20 years later, and there isn't very much information about kombucha tea out there in the literature, except for an article that was written in 2013 in the Journal of Environmental Health. And this article reviews the reports of these ill women back in 1995, it appears that they recently had increased the amount of kombucha that they had been drinking, and they both had some underlying illnesses that made them more susceptible to health problems from drinking very acidic beverages. Um, they also might have been over-fermenting tea, which causes the tea to have a pH of less than 2.5, which is not safe for some people. So according to this, to this article in the Journal of Environmental Health, the main health concerns with making kombucha are, first of all, the growth of pathogens in the tea, especially if it's not pasteurized after it's fermented. So the kombucha needs to be fermented to a pH greater than 2.5, but less than 4.2. And if the fermentation is over 4.5, uh, people are more at risk for botulism, particularly if it's not pasteurized. If it's fermented with a pH of less than 2.5, it just may end up being too acidic for many people who would be at risk um, with, for health problems, such as um, people with renal insufficiency or chronic kidney disease, um, if they drink things that are too acidic. So as a comparison, the pH of straight vinegar is about 2.2, lemon juice is 2, and battery acid is about 1. So if it's not pasteurized at the end of fermentation, it can develop mold, so it's important to keep it refrigerated. 
um, if it has not been pasteurized. So if any of you buy kombucha and it says to keep it refrigerated, you need to keep it refrigerated, otherwise it'll go bad and possibly become moldy. So the authors of this article say that people should not drink more than four ounces a day because of the risk of acidosis, just because it is somewhat acidic. And people who are immunocompromised should probably not drink it. And that's because people who are immunocompromised have higher risks whenever they ingest things that have a lot of live bacteria. So therefore, it should be fine to drink kombucha tea if a woman's nursing, but she should probably limit her volumes to no more than four ounces a day. And it would be safest if she buys a bottled version that's been pasteurized. So I wish I had Karen here for comments, but I don't. Um, But hopefully this will um, help people sort of accept the fact that they can drink kombucha tea um, and send me a message if you have any questions. The second topic I want to cover briefly is about vasospasm. We had a request through Facebook to talk about this topic. So vasospasm is a very common problem in nursing women. Uh, Vasospasm is defined as the narrowing down of blood vessels, which causes a reduced blood flow to the tissue. So this is oftentimes seen in feet and hands, where the fingers and toes turn pale and then blue, and they feel very cold to the touch. And this is more likely to happen in cold weather. Um, It it tends to be associated with certain diseases that are autoimmune, um, which are diseases where the immune system is fighting against itself, um, such as uh, in the case in rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, or otherwise known as systemic lupus erythematosus. I think for those of you who see nursing women, uh, you all see this periodically when working with breastfeeding moms, and it's hard to sort out how much the vasospasm plays a role with the symptoms that mom has. Um, Sometimes the vasospasm um, may be caused by something else. Unfortunately, there are very few studies that are done in vasospasm in nursing women. Uh, The most common study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2013, Volume 149, Issue 3, and the authors were Barrett, Heller, Fullerton, and Stone. They basically looked at 22 cases of nursing mothers who had symptoms of nipple vasospasm. And they pulled these women out of a cohort of women who had chronic deep breast pain for at least four weeks. Nearly all of them had been treated at some point with fluconazole, which is a medication for yeast, and they failed to respond. They collected some information on breast milk cultures, but they only had cultures from nine of the 22 women, so uh, their information on bacterial cultures was not very helpful. The authors basically concluded that many women who are told that they have chronic yeast mastitis really might have Raynaud's syndrome. They then took um, 15 of these 22 women and gave them nifedipine, which is a a blood pressure medication oftentimes used for vasospasm. The medication is a calcium channel blocker, and it opens up the blood vessels or dilates the blood vessels to improve blood flow to the nipples. So they gave the nifedipine to 15 of the 22 women and found that 10 of these 15, or about 67%, either noticed a decrease or resolution of the pain. In general, I think we know that vasospasm occurs, and we all have our different opinions on this based on our own experiences because there aren't very many good studies. This study that I just talked about was basically a descriptive study. 
From my experience, I think that vasospasm can be primary or secondary. And what I mean is that if it's primary, it occurs because mom is simply prone to vasospasm. So she might have had Raynaud's in the past, and perhaps she has a history of an autoimmune illness. And I should say that if a mother has a vasospasm, even before she you know, has a baby, it doesn't necessarily mean that she has an autoimmune illness, um, but autoimmune illnesses increase the risk of having Raynaud's. Um, these women who are having pain because of vasospasm only have pain when, vasos when vasospasm occurs. And from my experience, they're more likely to experience that really deep blue or almost blackish color after the nipples turn pale. And they'll also say that when there's no vasospasm, they don't have any pain. So these women don't really complain of pain with latch. They don't really have nipple sensitivity unless they're actively having vasospasm at that time. These women improve with lots of heat, avoiding cold, and adding um, a medication, which is a calcium channel blocker, either nifedipine or something like verapamil. I think most women who have vasospasm have it occur secondarily, meaning that it's due to something else, like traumatic latch or sucking, um, or if they have a breast infection. The way that I tell the difference is by asking the mother about her pattern of pain. So if she has pain at times that she does not notice vasospasm, and her pain is not necessarily worse when she notices vasospasm, then I find that vasospasm is probably not the primary problem, and I focus on treating the primary problem, whether it's a breast infection, a nipple dermatitis, like due to eczema or psoriasis, or whether it's a latch problem, like a shallow latch uh, due to tongue tie. The other issue is that I see lots of blue and sometimes black-looking nipples during pumping. For many women, pumping can be traumatic, and I find that no matter how much medication I use to help to stop vasospasm while pumping, it really has to do with either switching breast shields to, the, to a better size or stopping pumping and just doing manual expression um, in terms of uh, being able to resolve it. So from my experience, if I see that's, that there's clearly another problem, such as infant biting, a shallow latch, evidence of a, of a mastitis or a ductal breast infection, the vasospasm tends to go away as the other problems are improving. So it's not, it's not a great deal of mothers that I'm treating with calcium channel blockers every year. It's, I'm probably maybe treating someone once a month um, in my breastfeeding clinic, so not, not very often. So that is all I have, and again, we don't, I don't have my sidekick with me, so if you have any comments or questions, uh, please send us a Facebook message at um, the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast, or you can email me at areglash at wisc.edu. I just also want to mention to those out there that I am beginning a Breastfeeding Medicine Fellowship for family physicians who are interested in spending a year with me starting in July of 2015 to um, become a breastfeeding medicine specialist. Um, the doctor would, again, need to have finished um, his or her residency, um, and the doctor will spend a year learning breastfeeding medicine and also will fulfill some responsibilities in family medicine with the goal of becoming a breastfeeding medicine specialist by the summer of 2016. So if any of you out there are listening, you know of a physician who wants to become trained, um, have that person contact me at my email, areglash 
at WISC, W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back um, in about three to four weeks. And I will have Karen with me. And we'll probably have the highlights from the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine meeting, which is in Cleveland in the second week of November. Thanks, everyone. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.